Hi there, everyone. This is Nikki McGowan, owner, founder, and CEO of Red Cheetah Yoga, and welcome to episode 16 of the Red Cheetah Yoga Transformational Podcast. And in tonight's episode, I have a guest who is very near and dear to my heart, and he's positively impacted the lives of so many people on this planet. It's Dan Nevins. He's a veteran of the United States Army. And he's a senior Baptiste yoga teacher and up to really, really big things in his life. So a little bit of background on uh, mine and Dan's relationship. Um, He originally came to Miami a few years ago when I was working at the Baptiste affiliate, Bala Vinyasa Yoga. And at the time, I was trying to get my then boyfriend to do um, yoga teacher training because it changed my life so much. And I saw that the shifts in my life um, he could also benefit from in his own as well. And it was taking Dan's class, Dan who had both legs amputated after um, his truck drove over a, a a landmine in Iraq and lost both of his legs as a result of that explosion. Um, my ex-boyfriend saw the possibilities in teaching even with a less than quote-unquote perfect practice. So Dan Nevins has been a huge inspiration to myself and people who are are still and have been close to me. And he was one of the first people I reached out to when I realized the Cheetah Coalition Project was going to be game on. And having a conversation with Dan over the phone, one-on-one, and him and I just, you know, throwing you know, bits of knowledge back and forth and inspiration back and forth. And I listened to his story. I realized um, that, you know, this podcast had to be a reality and um, I had to have him on as a guest as soon as I could. So with that being said, um, please enjoy this episode. Yes, it is very long. It seems as though my episodes keep getting longer, but it's for a reason. And what I'm up to with the Red Chitty Yoga podcast is getting complete with what my guests have to share on this podcast. Um, my guests are very much hand selected, are up to transformation in their own lives and in the lives of others. Sometimes it's one or the other, and most of the time it's both. So, Enjoy this episode with Dan Nevins, and to donate to the Cheetah Coalition Project, please click on the link in the bio in this episode, or you can head to redcheetahyoga.com, click on studio, and also head to the bio in each of my Instagram accounts, Red Cheetah Yoga and Nikki the Fairy, that's N-I-K-K-I-F-A-I-R-Y. Um, please help us, myself and Dan included, to um, work towards a world that can see PTSD be healed and cured and hopefully one day lead to a world that knows no war and that is something of the past. Um, at least that's my big, you know, ultimate goal with where the Cheetah Coalition Project is headed to connect with Dan Please stay tuned to the end of this episode. It will also be located in the show notes. So please let us know what you think of this interview with Dan Nevins. And also one more thing, Cheetah family, I wanted to um, clarify before this episode begins is there are a few technical mishaps and difficulties that do occur in this episode. So I do want to apologize for those things. 
in advance. This phone call was, was done oh, as a phone call over the app. So um, Dan and I did lose connection um, at least twice. So um, I hope that doesn't impede or impact your enjoyment of this episode. And as always, um, please feel free to send me or Dan or any other guest on this podcast a very lovely email. So now, definitely without any further ado, please enjoy the 16th episode of the Red Cheetah Yoga Transformational Podcast. Hello. Hello. Perfect. You sound so good now on this attempt. Good, good. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for um, being on the Red Chidi Yoga Transformational Podcast. Um, I just want to say it means so, so much to me to have you on this. I know it took us a while to, you know, get our schedules together and coordinate. Um, And thanks so much for taking time out of your super busy schedule. I know you're up to huge things in your life. So the fact that you're taking the time for this really means a lot to me and to a lot of our listeners as well. So thanks so much. Yeah, no problem, Nikki. It's a, it's an honor, absolutely, you know, actually to um, be able to talk with you. I know you're up to some big things yourself, mm-hmm. and there are some things that are happening in alignment. So it's time very well spent. Yes, I agree 100%. So um, I also wanted to acknowledge you um, because I it was very much that weekend a couple years ago at Bala Vinyasa Yoga that um, create a lot of impetus for what I'm creating with Red Chidi Yoga, with mental health, with PTSD and our veterans um, specifically, that is re- really inspired me to create the Chida Coalition Project, which the listeners already are familiar with, because um, I'll have it mentioned in the intro when I'm done recording here. So mm-hmm. um, I've seen you transform the lives of so many people, including um, the ex-boyfriend that I had, that I was with for many, many years. Um, Mm -hmm. He wouldn't have done teacher training if it wasn't for how amazingly you showed up um, for that amazing workshop you did a few years ago at the Baptist. Thank you. So, yeah, you're doing big things and I appreciate it. It It's so great um, to see what you're doing. So let's get right to it, shall we? Absolutely. All right. So if you could share with the audience, where are you from originally? So I grew up in Baltimore, but just outside of Baltimore City in a place called Lansdowne, which, um, you know, looks like the average, uh, you know, uh, what we affectionately call the hood. <laughs> so I grew up in not so great circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it could be, definitely be worse, but, you know, I, I had a, you know, I'd say an underprivileged upbringing and I'm just, uh, you know, I still go home and I still love it. And I still have great friends that live in the area. Most of them, you know, sort of kind of moved away and, did better for themselves and uh but it's just yeah it's an honor to be from baltimore from charm city and it's also great to have kind of moved away oh wow i didn't know that about you that's really really awesome Mm -hmm. great so what made you choose um to go into the military you you chose the marines right am i no no army but army you think you're thinking of uh you know the day that that, that uh, my life changed forever was on the Marine Corps birthday. So a lot of people sort of have that um, in their head. Oh, God. But it. yeah, for me, for me, I joined because, well, like, first of all, I grew up, my dad was served during Vietnam. He didn't fight in the Vietnam War, 
uh, he was stationed in Germany, you know, the Cold War was still happening. So there were people there, but he didn't have a great experience. And especially even returning home, the war was going on. So he got the same treatment that absolutely horrendous. Uh-huh. And it just, um, the military and being in the army was something he never spoke about. Both my grandparents uh, served during World War II in the Navy. Both my, both my grandfathers served during World War II in the Navy. And actually, you know, so did, so did my grandmothers, but they served, you know, on the home front as the way, they, the way everyone served um, back then during the greatest generation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so growing up, you know, it was more like survival for me. So no one talked about the military. I mean, recruiters would come to school, but when they did, like, I was always like, oh, yeah, no way, because my dad had nothing but, you know, negative things to say. Right. And it's something that changed for me when I was watching, te- like, you know, I grew up, the TV was my babysitter. Mm-hmm. And I was watching television one day. It was the summer before my senior year. I had just finished my, um, my second junior year of high school because I did so well the first time. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, that's when you don't, my mom left when I was 13. So I didn't have parents sort of making me do homework or, and my dad was a truck driver. He was gone all the time. So my brother and I basically raised ourselves and the oh, TV wow. was our babysitter. You know, back then they called us latchkey kids. Um, but, you know, because you used to wear your uh, house key on the, on your kind of on a necklace. And that was like the indicator that you were going home alone and you were going to be I alone. I knew that's what that meant. Yeah. That's... For that term. And I never knew that's what that meant. I, and I guess that in a way I was too then. Like, my yeah. And I. yeah, probably, you know, yeah. a lot of people in our generation sort of were because that was sort of the era when uh, you households started needing to become double income households yes. to survive. Very you much. know, there was like the horrible economy in the 70s and we're coming out of that in the 80s and then more people were working. Everyone had to have jobs. My, when my mom was still around, she worked too. So, you know, it was just, it was touch and go, you know, but, you know, different than latchkey kids, I never had a key because we just never locked our door because if somebody, where I lived, if somebody wanted to break in, they would just kick in your door. So like, <laughs> why, why lock it? Oh my you God. Know? <laughs> um, you know, but I grew up, the TV is my babysitter and, you know, like I grew up in the era of the family sitcom, you know, there was like leave it to beaver reruns still on little house in the prairie was syndicated. It was everywhere. All this sort of like nuclear family goodness was all over the the television. Even, um, you know, non-traditional families like uh, the facts of life. It was like a, I don't know. I don't want to say it was an orphanage, but they were like all these foster kids living together with Natalie and Blair and Tootie and like Mrs. Garrett was like the mother figure and they had like their handyman was like the father figure. And all I saw on TV were a reminder of things I didn't have. Wow. Like that sort of family, right? Like the Cosby show was huge. Like, Mm -hmm. well, Guess it turned out Bill Cosby wasn't so great, but uh, but Cliff <laughs> yeah, Huxtable. Huge when I was a kid too. I watched yeah. a lot of the Cosby Show. Exactly, Cliff Huxtable nailed it as a dad, though. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, I just it, it's just I didn't have that, and then so I watch it to just get the entertainment value, just to sort of maybe to pass time, and sort of it was safer inside than outside. So, you know, I just grew up watching television in the moments that I wasn't working or, or something else. And then I remember specifically, it was this beginning of Desert Shield. It was like very early and there was a unit that was being deployed and it was 
they interrupted actually the regular broadcast to show. And it was regular. It was like, had to be a local unit in Maryland because I didn't have cable. So it was, um, you know, it was uh, local, like NBC, ABC, CBS, one of the affiliates. Mm -hmm. And I saw one of those things that we've all seen way too much of at this point, the one of those farewell ceremonies. Right. Where the, you know, the kids had the, the signs that come home soon, be safe. And, mm. you know, mom or dad, and there were the people, you know, all in uniform saying goodbye to their families. Again, another just reminder of something I didn't have. Right. And it's that thing that, you know, it, it pulls on our heartstrings now. But at, at that moment in my life, I was just bitter kid. Like I didn't, I, I just wanted it to be off. I didn't care. I could care less about these people and where they were going. There was a little, because I didn't really understand the war, but mm -hmm. here's what I, here's what I saw next. And it, and it changed everything for me. So like, as they're saying goodbye to their families and the tears, I was just like, sort of pissed. You know, it was just another example of like, this is what you don't have. And like, it's everywhere, but where you are, right? right. Everybody has this family and you don't. Right. And, um, and don't get me wrong. Like, I have family and, and I love them. And they love me, but it just wasn't like that. Hmm. And what I saw was all of those people in uniform leave their families and then they came together. And then there were more embraces right. and more tears. And it's like deep, like squeezes of like brotherhood, sisterhood of love, really, mm -hmm. as I think back on it. And I saw that and I was like, now that is a family I can be part of. Like, I know, I know I could just, I could just join. And then I started to pay more attention. And then I was listening to like what was happening, like why there were, where there might be this war. And we were posturing up because this bully country, as it was portrayed in the media, this bully country of Iraq was invading this poor, helpless country of Kuwait who didn't have an army. And like, we were going to go stand up. And like, I have been bullied my whole life. Like being the young kid, always a smaller kid and in the neighborhood where I grew up, like I knew what that was like. And I was like, okay, yeah, there's, we're doing something about the bullies in the world. And then I started to get like all invigorated. And then I just remember I made the decision like senior year had just started. I'm like, I'm going to go join. And I went down and took all the tests and talked to all the different branches. And it was the army that sort of got my attention the most. They were going to give me the most money for college because then I was like, well, maybe I can be the first person in my family to wow. go to college. Did you go to college? I did. Where did you go? I did went to Sonoma State University oh, great. In, what did you study? in California. I studied business, business oh. administration with a concentration in marketing. And you told me on our phone conversation a few months ago that you're considering possibly going back to study a whole nother um, like career track, right? Absolutely. Well, I want, you know, as I, as I move along through my life, like I'm, I always want to be learning and I've gotten myself so busy. And so after, you know, at this point, thousands of hours of yoga teacher training, like I right. feel like I, I'm I, I'm good and I'm actually in my own work as a, as a yoga teacher and as a leader to to even develop more content in the yoga space and mindfulness space, and then so I'm like looking at so where's my like growing edge of of learning because I haven't been in school, and I go back and forth between getting my MBA with a um, healthcare administration focus um, because ultimately. Ultimately, what I think I want to do, you know, and it's probably you know, at least a decade from now, is go into policymaking 
and really change the way that our healthcare system works in the United States. Yes. Making making holistic healthcare something that's reimbursable, something that medical students learn in medical school. Yes, you can prescribe and yes, you can, but you also say, you know, maybe the thing that needs to be prescribed first is something that's actually free and doesn't put chemicals into your body. Right. Like diet, exercise, meditation, yoga, all those. Absolutely. You nailed it. And then so, you know, in order to get credibility in that space, you sort of need the letters behind your name and you sort of need to have. um, So I have what I have is credibility um, just in doing the work. But what I what I don't have is um, validity in the space. Right. Right. Um, And then so it's sort of like I want to catch up on, on that aspect. Well, I'm the way I see it, you have plenty of time to catch up and the world is waiting on you to do it. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, um, yeah, because that was one big takeaway from my um, physiology degree I did in my undergrad was like so much of the diseases we're fighting in this country are so preventable. And 70%. We, yeah, like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, like they're so preventable and they're just crippling us as, you know, even a world population, you know, yeah. if you global looking absolutely um, in the u.s 70 percent of our health care costs our taxpayer dollars 70 percent of the of what huge. we're paying for are preventable disease huge huge yeah if you could change one thing about americans habits one thing that would be a huge like game changer what would that one thing be two things come to my mind but i'm like i'm curious to know number you- one is diet yes that was for me, it's green vegetables or meditation or both. Mm-hmm. Well, like, cause see, see, here's the thing. It's like, it's, it's a diet. So I could say meditation, mm-hmm. but then, you know, which is, which is great. But like, if, if the diet is fixed, then our, like all of the things, like the way that sugar wreaks havoc on our body and, oh, yeah. uh, like, and processed foods is like, we become more clear. Oh, but- meditation is that much easier. Yeah. I right. Mean, so it's sort of like I'm picking the biggest rock. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Like I've even noticed my meditation is clearer the cleaner I'm eating. Like if Absolutely. I, if, I, if I'm not eating that clean or let myself slide here and there, like my meditation isn't as clear and it isn't as deep. And my brain doesn't function as well. But mm-hmm. yeah, green vegetables for me are the go to. Um Yeah, and I'm and I'm not immune. Like when when we first started talking, I was like, Hey, before we start, let me finish this bite. I was eating a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> amazing (laughs) look i'm not proud of it but it have it's real and like there's something needs to be done about it right i agree so how old were you when you going into the army 17 and well 18 technically by the time i left 17 when i joined and i joined a delayed entry program see what i didn't realize was that i had to i thought i was just gonna go but i had to graduate high school first and I was like, shit, <laughs> you know, like, because at that point I knew I was going to go and, and it wasn't super fast. Right. So you had to take these tests and you had to wait and then you did. And I'm like, in the meantime, I'm like, I'm going to the army. I'm going to go fight in this war when it kicks off. So like, I'm just not doing homework at all. Turns oh, out no. I had to graduate. And <laughs> when I went and brought my form to my guidance counselor to fill out, to say like, okay, you're going to graduate on time to go get a date for my basic training. Uh-huh. I, I wasn't good. She said, there's no way to graduate. You're not going to graduate on time. Oh, Even no. though they had like promoted me or whatever you call it to 12th grade. Um, but that, but it was the first goal I ever had. Wow. In my whole life. Graduate wow. high school on time. 
So it took three nights a week of night school and Saturday morning school and a full load of day school. And I had a job and a girlfriend. So I had like no sleep, but I got it all done and I graduated on time and ready to go for my basic training date. That was two days after high school graduation. You you did what two days after you left for basic training? Well, yeah, I left for basic training. Graduated, walked the stage. Two days later, I was headed to basic training. Where did you do your basic training? Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Oh, nice. My little brother is at Fort Benning right now. I was just on the phone mm. with my family, planning out our family day for um, that's happening in like three weeks. He's going to infantry then. Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. He is. I did my airborne school at Fort Benning. I know it really well. So that's what you did. You what is airborne school exactly? What do you airborne start? school is um, a school where you learn to jump out of airplanes oh. and para- like military parachuting. So you get the the airborne, you know, the parachutist badge, and then you become airborne qualified, which makes you just feel cooler. And then when you go, like when I was stationed <laughs> at Fort Bragg, you know, like you have the cool unit patch. Like I had the the 18th Airborne Corps Dragon with the airborne tab above it, and my wings and my chest. And oh, that's awesome. you know, we get to jump out of airplanes, and you wear the maroon beret, and you just feel you feel a little more badass. And 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 you, I mean, again, you sort of are. You you when you do that, you put yourself in a position to be um, in a rapid deployment unit. You you put yourself in the in a position when you're volunteering for these schools and these certifications to be the ones that go somewhere first. Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes sense. Because mm. like, that's what the purpose of that is, right? To right, you it. parachute in behind enemy lines to fight the war where it's happening, right? So like, that's the whole point of um, military parachuting is to parachute into a battle space. Wow. And oh start God. fighting a war, <laughs> like before we can get equipment there before the ships can bring heavy equipment before, you know, we can convoy in equipment and be strategic it's like no we're going to jump in we're going to drop the because it's not only personnel they're dropping in howitzer and cannons and trucks and tanks and they're just boom boom they're dropping it all in and then you have to go put your weapon into operation immediately and go put your equipment into operation and start fighting the war i had no idea that's what that was i'm Mm -hmm. literally clueless dan when it comes to this part of like (laughs) no it's, it's not something people think about no, it's not at all. And I'm actually really grateful for like, you know, all the people I've encountered and talked to. I feel like I learned something new about like every branch and like with like distinctions within branches too. Like, cause I had, I like knew I would never go that route. I always wanted to go to college and be an athlete. So it was, mm-hmm. a, it was a completely different life that I had and I was largely ignored it. And it's really sure. thanks to CrossFit that I even, um, that the Cheetah Coalition Project exists because people were doing the 21 push-ups a day after their workouts. Mm-hmm. And they told me why they were doing it. And, and then know, they were doing Murph on Veterans Day. and That was one of the – when did I do Murph the first time? I was pretty early on in my CrossFit career. I did Murph the first time. Now, and Murph has the movie with um, – what's the name of the movie? Oh, you, I, I know, but I just – it's on the spot. It's not coming Mark to me. Mark Wahlberg's in it, right? Well, the um, Mark Wahlberg is in Lone Survivor. Isn't that about Michael Murphy? I don't think. No, Mark no, Wahlberg... that is uh, Marcus Luttrell. That's yeah. Marcus Luttrell's He's story. He's the guy who wrote the book. Right. Yeah, it's Lone Marcus Survival. Luttrell, right? Right. Marcus. Yeah, I have Marcus. The... I know. I watched the movie. Was so inspired. Bought the book and just never could get around to reading the book. The movie was just so impactful and um, yeah, and that's about um. That's about Murph. Well, is guy, it? 
I think it is the guy who um, saves his unit. Yeah, I think that's Murph. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it is. I'm yeah, sure some, I'm, only half the listeners probably know what Murph is. <laughs> they have a lot right. of listening it's, to it, this. It's, a, it's Michael Murphy. Mm-hmm. And the workout is one it is it is it is you're right it is lone, lone survivor because it right. tells us it's because uh, Murph went to um, Penn State. Oh, he did. Yeah, uh, yeah, he went to Penn State and he was a seal. Yeah, that's right. It, he is highlighted. Well, it's Marcus Luttrell is the lone survivor. Yeah, and he wrote the book about right like, and, and that right, and he highlights Murph's sacrifice. Yes. Amazing right. story. Yes. It's unbelievable that that's a true story. It's one of one of the best movies, like war movies I've ever seen, I think. Yeah, um, it's it's um I mean it's, it's like insane that that like it's in, it's completely insane that that actually happened. Um right. the things that went wrong and the things that went right. Right. Oh, absolutely. You know, and and then that 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 Marcus was able to survive and, and- and it. not only not only you know learn a lot and be able to share with the with the seal community and the military community in general but also you know for him to share the stories of everyone's sacrifice right to be I able always... to be able to tell their families what amazing men they were like Absolutely. that's um firsthand like that's uh that's wonderful it is to be able to have that um, ability to pass those stories on. I think it's so important, you know? Right. Um, so great. So let's move on back to your story. Mm-hmm. So you went um, at 18 and you learned all this really badass stuff with your red beret. <laughs> maroon, <laughs> maroon beret. Maroon, sorry. Maroon beret. Is that a different thing, red beret? I'm uh, well, it's not red. I mean, there's no, maybe in a foreign military, there's a red beret. Okay. But, um, okay, so specifically maroon. And yeah. um, how long um, did you serve for? Total. So I did eight years active duty. Mm-hmm. So four years in Germany, four years at Fort Bragg, and then the balance of my fifteen years was all fifteen years total was in the National Guard. Okay. And of the fifteen years, so 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 of the seven years in the Guard, for a little over four four and a half of those were active duty. Mm-hmm. Got it. Like called up to go fight and that was where so the first time i was called to active duty title 10 active duty from the national guard was right after 9 11 and i went for we went we had this participate in this operation called operation noble eagle i was in the california guard and we got stationed on the border of california and mexico because we had a freeze on arab national immigration at the time and they just wanted to show force at the border because I, I allegedly they were, you know, coming in to Mexico and South America, Arabs that were, and whether they had hostile intent or not, that that's not really the point. There was mm-hmm. a breeze. Right. And then so they were coming in and then getting, you know, because they could, you know, with the right dress, they could they could pass for someone from South America or, or Central America and oh, then I- come up through the border illegally that way with you know, fake documents. So we just, it was just a show of force on the border. We were working with immigration and customs and just kind of hanging out on the border, like working their job. And we weren't allowed, it was crazy because we weren't, there's a, there's a, there's an act uh, legislated by Congress. It's called the Posse Cumitatis Act. And so because of the Posse Cumitatis Act, we were not allowed to have weapons. 
So we were all in military uniform. And like the maximum thing you could have was a pocket knife. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so it was what... it was weird. It was very it was very odd. And okay. though we just did it anyway. Fair um, enough. That, and that was like a six month, a little over six month deployment. And then we came back. And, then, and in my head, okay, that's that's what a National Guard deployment is. You know, you go to the border and kind of hang out without weapons. And like, oh, okay. Right. And then that would did that just not inspire you then? To, well, like. It, it, I mean, it, it was, you know, it was like a duty I had to do, right? Um, I had to miss a semester of college. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but like after 9-11, though, I was ready to go do anything, right? Like I was oh. like, send me anywhere. I'll do anything. I mean, you know, you remember the, how it was and it just, I, you know, hey, this is what we're doing. I'm all in. And though, you know, I had left Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg is like, home of the airborne four hour recall anywhere in the world it's like you know the most rapid deployment the most the sort of the the best the best if you will and and there's um people might hear that and they're like no that's over here no it's just like at the (laughs) top level the top echelon of preparedness in the military and then i went to the california national guard which was the uh, the polar opposite you know, you know, I worked in the, the, the training room and I was looking at training records and people hadn't shot their weapon in more than six years and hadn't taken a physical fitness yeah. test in longer than that. And it all showed. But yeah. I remember trying to order ammunition to, to look at, hey, we need to do something about this. And I was a training NCO. Like I worked in the training room at Fort Bragg. Like um, I knew how to get these things done. So I was like, oh, National Guard, let me help you out. Right. And so they come in and I'm like ordering ammunition. We're going to get this fixed. And they were, I got these, the, you know, feedback pushed back from higher headquarters. Sorry, like there's no money to buy bullets. Wow. So they didn't have, they didn't, there was no budget. So um, in my head, I was like, yeah, man, I wonder if we're going to go fight in the war, you know? Uh-huh. And then I was like, well, there's no way we're going to go fight in the war. Not, not with these people. Like we're untrained. Like it's like the Beverly Hillbillies going to fight a war. Our weapons were old and dusty. I'm like, this isn't going to happen. And people hadn't shot them. It's unsafe, actually. Right. right. You know, oh so, God. yeah, it's never going to happen. And I was right for a couple more years. And then we did so, get deployed. So then you got deployed. Mm-hmm. And where did you end up? In Iraq. After Iraq? Mm-hmm. And is that is that where, um, was that towards the end of your career when you ended up experiencing your accident? Or is that not? Well, yes and no. It was my last deployment. Um, mm-hmm. but then, you know, after, so I got deployed in, uh, January of 04 okay. and then by the time we got to it, so we had to train up at the national training center in, in California. And then we got sent to Kuwait for a couple weeks to stage. And then we went into Iraq in the very beginning of March of 04. And then, you know, I, you know, the, the day that, you know, completely altered my life was uh, almost nine months later in November uh-huh. of 04. And then I spent two years still active duty in the hospital before so I, re- you still, before I retired still, in 2006. You, so you stayed active duty in the hospital for two years yeah. and then they, um, then they, what is the, I was medically life? retired. Okay. Got it. Got it. Mm-hmm. So did you want, let's go into then like, the events that occurred that uh, and put you in the hospital and sure. kind of like really led you into really being a yoga teacher, right? Is yeah. that my 
Do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it wasn't right away, but it did. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we first got deployed, you know, I didn't think we were going to do anything significant. You know, we were supposed to be deployed, said we we're going to go somewhere for six months. It was either supposed to be Bosnia or it was supposed to be Sinai or maybe Iraq for six months. And in my head, I was like, well, it can't be Iraq. And then it was, it was Iraq for six months. The uh-huh. day we got deployed, we found out that it wasn't for six months. I remember seeing my orders. It was like, Staff Sergeant Evans, your order being deployed in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom 2 for a period of no less than 545 days. Wow. How many days? That's that's 18 months. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Right, because a year is 365. Right. Wow. And I was like, this is crazy. Six months at all? Six (laughs) months. So six months turned into 18, like overnight. And then just you know then i was like oh we can't be doing anything serious come on come on like we had this old dusty you know equipment and we're just untrained and like we you know we have the desert camouflage uniform but our protective gear like our our vests and our helmets have our woodland camouflage you know so we don't even like match right like we don't look you know we have these old like it looks like literally like the beverly hillbillies rolling into town i remember our vehicles too no armor we had plywood like from yeah. Home Depot, like plywood yeah. roofs on our Humvees and yeah. like sandbags on the floor for armor, like scrap metal bolted to the side. Because when, you know, when the, if you remember your history, when the war first kicked off, I mean, it was just like, there was no resistance. They were pulling the statue of Saddam down in the street. There was like nothing happening. Right. But right. then right when we were getting deployed right there in 2004, it started getting crazy. And there were, you know, the the IED was born, the improvised explosive device, and what they would call the roadside bomb. And people were just planting bombs everywhere. And, uh, you know, they were shaking your hand, saying, "Oh, so glad you're here." And then the planting bombs that night, right? Wow. Yeah. So there was no really defined enemy. So it was this really um, sketchy situation to be in, and and deadly. And so I was like, "Oh, well, we can't be doing anything significant." And then, turns out, we were supposed to be doing physical security of LSA and Aconda, which is uh, it was the largest base in the theater. And actually a pretty, for all intensive purposes, a safe base, meaning it was so big, it wasn't about to be overrun. And uh-huh. it had it, the Air Force had uh, an airship there. They called it Balad Air Base. Army called it LSA and Aconda. There were 20,000 people at this base. So uh, wow, multinational forces, DOD civilians, like it was pretty big, but they did call it Mortaritaville instead of Margaritaville because we get mortared all day, every day. But, wow. you know, but they're like not sophisticated with aiming. So a lot of times like they would just land in the middle of an empty space and maybe some equipment would get damaged or maybe some people would get injured, but no, not catastrophic. And sometimes it was catastrophic. Um, but oh, you know, we were supposed to, be, yeah, say again. Was that every day? Oh, every day. Multiple mortars every day. Every day. And so we were supposed to do physical security. So like in the guard towers and the gates. And I was like, okay, well, that's we can do that. But then uh, our mission was changed. We were going to be part of this task force called Task Force Tacoma. And we would be responsible for acting on operational intelligence, kicking in doors and chasing down bad guys. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, how did, like, we're not ready. Like, I didn't think we were, we we were not the right people for this job. And, um, and we weren't. 
and we started losing people. Oh my gosh. And, uh, but there's something really powerful about goals. Uh And when the consequence of not meeting your goals, and in this case, the goal being at least be a proficient combat unit, just, just proficient, you know? Mm-hmm. And when the consequence of not meeting that goal is that your best friends die right in front of you. Oof, the am- amount of human transformation potential in those moments is all inspiring. And I watched this group of like these people, like the Beverly Hillbillies, become one of the most amazing group of warfighters on the planet. Like I am so but, grateful yeah. to have served with them and let alone had the opportunity to lead. And it was... um zero regrets and I'm so glad that um that that's who I was deployed with wow like that in and of itself is a story mm-hmm. wow how many of you were there well so yeah. our company uh our company was just around a hundred people and I was in third platoon and then so like I was the first squad leader of third platoon so there were eight of us in the squad so like I was the like in the squad is like the most uh, tactical the, like element. So as a squad leader in in combat, it's the it's the best job in the army because okay. you know you have your platoon leader, platoon sergeant, sort of controlling like the space. But when it comes down to fighting, like the war, like the squad leader is the one. It's like the it's like you're the composer uh, the of of the battle space, and you are just the one like the maestro kind of calling the shots and like moving through and, you know, getting what needs to get done and done. And that was you. And that was me. Awesome. And so then what, what ended up happening while you were over there? So, I mean, a lot of different things, a lot of close calls, a lot of different sort of sophisticated type operations that we got to be a, to be a part of. But the one that, um, that changed everything was, well, it's sort of helpful to go back a little bit. Like we, um, the Battle of Fallujah started on November 7th of 2004. And there's been multiple battles in Fallujah. This was like the big one. Like if there's ever a book written about the war in Iraq, if they include one battle at all, it would be the Battle of Fallujah in 04. And you and, were there for it? No, I wasn't. Oh, you were? Yeah. Oh, you were? I okay. was at the, in, still in Balad at LSA and Anaconda. But I remember it started, it was, that was a Marine Corps battle. That was a Marine Corps effort. But the, what the Marines don't have, um, a lot of people may not know this if they don't serve um, or haven't served, is the Marine Corps doesn't have any medics. They don't use, they don't have their own. So they use Navy corpsmen usually, but there aren't a lot of Navy corpsmen. This, this battle was going to be so big and so significant. They knew they needed more medics. And then so they, they looked to the Army. And I had the best medic on the planet, a guy named Sergeant Gautreau. Sergeant Gautreau was literally the best there was. And uh, best there is. And so it wasn't surprised when they took Sergeant Gautreau. And then I got this new medic, a guy named Dan Smee. And this is the National Guard. These are all from the National Guard. Sergeant Gautreau was from the Washington State National Guard. Dan Smee was from the California Guard, like I was, but from Southern California. Never really met the guy before. Mm-hmm. And he had this, like, surfer haircut. And he was, like, from <laughs> Southern California. I remember meeting him. He was like, oh, Sergeant Nevin, so good to meet you, bro. And I'm like, oh, God, is this guy hi? Like, what is this? You know? Oh, no. <laughs> um, but we got to, you know, the guys got to know him. Like, he seemed cool. But, you know, nothing. Thankfully, we didn't need to see his services, you know? 
or use his services uh, over the next few days. And then I remember on November 9th, we got intelligence that some of the insurgency was leaving Fallujah to come attack LSA and Aconda, mm-hmm. where we were. And then wow. so like the most professional army in the world, like we said, no, we're going to meet them where they are. We're not going to let them come here. Right. And then, so we drew up a battle plan. We prepared, we practiced, we rehearsed for every possible contingency. And this was a little different. See, I was first squad leader third platoon. So third platoon was responsible for putting together the team to, to, take on this 72-hour this dismounted counterinsurgent operation. That's what we were going to do. Go out, go where, the, where we think the bad guys are supposed to be. We'll hide out for 72 hours, wait for them. If they show up, we take care of business, go home. We've been successful at missions like that in the past. No reason we wouldn't be successful this time. Prepared everything. But see, typically it'd be run by my platoon sergeant, Mike Adelini. And if, um, but Mike is literally the hardest working human being I've ever met in my life. Like if, if there's one thing I that I could say about Mike, it would, it's not that he's the smartest guy in the room ever. It's not that he's the most charismatic guy in the room. He's neither of those things. But I don't care what room in what country on this planet, if Mike Annalini is in the room, he is the hardest working human being in the room, period. Amazing. And uh, here's the deal. It's like he had been fighting with this protruding abdominal hernia for months and no one knew. Until we finally caught on, we're like, Mike, got to get that fixed and go get surgery. So we had surgery scheduled for November 10th, the day this operation was supposed to take place. And I was the first squad leader of 3rd Platoon, so I'm next in command. So this one was mine. Uh So it was uh, me as the non-commissioned officer in charge and my platoon leader, uh, Lieutenant Doxy. We kind of coordinated everything. We were, you know, ready to go. 4 a.m. start time on 10 November, head out to where we're supposed to be, take care of business. And then I remember leaving the main gates of LSA and Anaconda at exactly 04, like right, like military precision. It couldn't get better. Mm-hmm. And then we took a right on a well-traveled paved road on that we called Route Dover. And then an almost immediate left on a pitiful excuse for a dirt road and route to what was supposed to be our dismount site. And I remember it was pitch black outside. Like there was a uh, low hanging cloud cover. So you couldn't see the moon or the stars. And it was eerily silent. So we kind of trudged carefully down this pitiful road and silence and darkness. And, and my head was bowed in prayer like it was before every mission. And then boom, that was it. Like the earth erupted beneath my vehicle and my 18,000 pound vehicle was sent about six feet in the air in a ball of fire. Wow. And I remember being in that prayer when the explosion happened, I could basically feel and hear the truck disintegrate around my body. And when I opened my eyes, I realized that I'd been ejected from the vehicle. Um, and I might've been knocked out for a couple of seconds. I'm not sure when, but I realized I was laying in the dirt, but, and I couldn't move and my legs were caught in the twisted and burning metal that used to be the floorboard and undercarriage of the truck. And starting to make sense and trying to make sense of everything, but I just remember my face was really hot. My, I had the taste of blood in my mouth. My ears were ringing. I had a sickening knot in my stomach, and it just I couldn't really make sense of things. But I could see a little better now because there were some lingering fire from the blast that was starting to consume my vehicle. And I just remember watching through blurred eyes and listening to my team move with tactical proficiency, securing the perimeter, doing everything they're supposed to do. 
And I'm supposed to be the guy yelling out these commands and I'm saying nothing and they're doing everything right. Wow. And then, so what does it mean to secure the perimeter for, you know, us civilians who don't understand all of this terminology? Yeah. So something gets blown up, right. Or there's a, um, an ambush or something happens. Mm -hmm. And then, so what, what the team needs to do is because there's probably in the, there's probably a casualty, Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can't evacuate a casualty or take care of a casualty until the, the, the battle space is safe. So they rush out and set up a perimeter. Like they encircle like the area where the accident is. And in this case, there was no follow on ambush, very fortunately. But they have to be prepared. Like now, 100 people are going to come rushing us. So they have to set up and get in firing positions and like maneuver trucks to lay down suppressive fire, do whatever needs to happen to secure the area to make it safe to come go assess what happened. Okay, got it. I've always wondered what that meant. So I'm yeah. very grateful. No, it's perfect that. because I mean, because if you think of like the reality of it, it's like, oh my gosh, somebody just got hurt. Let's right. all go rush to help. And then they just kill everybody. Right, because they're all in one spot. That's that's a normal human response. Like, but with your training, they they change that that response. Yeah. Okay, I got it. Got it. So they're securing the perimeter. It was only your truck that was affected because there was more than one vehicle that went out. There were six six vehicles. Six vehicles Mm -hmm. in the convoy. I was in the lead vehicle. So what happened was we hit a pressure detonated IED. You didn't know at the time, but like the tire hit a pressure switch and it blew up two hundred and fifty five millimeter artillery shells that were. It basically blew up right underneath our truck. Holy crap. Oh, my God. So how many people were in that truck? There were five of us in the truck. And how Sergeant many walked Lee. away from the truck? Uh, three. Wow. So remember I told you about Mike. See, Mike yes. had surgery scheduled for that day. Yes. But Mike had found his way to at least be part of it because Mike said, you know what? I'm going to drive. I can't oh, be no. here. I can't fight this with you, but I'm going to drive you guys out. Make sure you're good. And I'm going to come back because the idea of this, this mission was trucks going a regular sort of patrol. Our teams, because I've never, I never sat in the back seat of a Humvee until this day. I was always in the front passenger seat, which is called the TC seat, the truck commander seat. So sort of like that's where you can coordinate things from. There's a computer screen called a blue force tracker where you can like call for fire or do whatever you need to do. Mm-hmm. but I'm in the back seat, just a passenger because the idea is we go around this turn. We open the doors while they're still moving. We roll out, we go take up concealed positions and then move over through the cover of darkness and concealment moves to this place where we're supposed to be about seven kilometers away. Mm-hmm. So wow. the idea was these trucks keep moving. Sergeant Ali keeps driving. They come back to base. Like, hey. so if anybody's watching it, Oh, there's doesn't just look like anything. Patrol. Doesn't yeah. look like anything's happening. Right. So we're headed out for that. And then, you know, Mike chose to drive. And then when that explosion happened and then I'm laying in the dirt and uh-huh. I'm hearing everybody move. When the dust started to descend, I looked to the driver's compartment of the vehicle and it was painfully obvious that that Mike was gone. Wow. Um, would that yeah, have been was... your seat if he had? No, gone? I would have been in the passenger seat. I wouldn't have been driving. Mm. And then so Lieutenant Doxy, my my PL was in the seat across from me. He was knocked out. Um, my gunner, Poindexter, was, yes, his name is Poindexter. He was in the turret, <laughs> so he's in the middle. Think of a, think of a dice, uh, a five on a, on a dice. Oh, yes. That's what, that, that's what we look like. Person driving, passenger, 
backseat passenger, other seat passenger, somebody uh-huh. right in the middle standing on this sort of platform that goes over the uh, transmission and transfer case and drivetrain. And then they're sitting in the little web as they get the 50 caliber machine gun on the top with their head and chest and head poked out the top of the truck. Got it. Okay. Wow. That's intimidating. And so Poindexter was blown out of the vehicle and then ripped the 50 cal off its hinge pin and landed in the canal. Um, uh, Sergeant Henson, who was the first platoon platoon sergeant was the TC of my truck and Lieutenant Doxy, who was my kind of, you know, it's actually his mission because he's a commissioned officer. But um, so he and I are, you know, team leaders for this and he's on the right seat and he's knocked out. Mm-hmm. So Mike's gone. Poindexter's delirious off in the canal somewhere. Henson and Doxy are knocked out and I'm laying in the dirt and I'm just listening to people. And I knew that I was hurt, especially after seeing Mike, but I didn't really, I didn't realize how bad I was hurt. Mm-hmm. And then I'm realizing when they're securing the perimeter, I'm like, I know I have, I know I need a medic, but I know it's going to take a while for the medic to get here because they have to secure the perimeter first. Like I know what's, and this is all happening in like less than a second, these assessments. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And I'm like, I better check out. I better see how, how hurt I am. So like we're trained, I started with my head and my helmet came apart in two pieces in my hand. Oh my God. And I was like, okay, that's not good. Um, but I'm conscious and that's good. So I put my, I remember putting my fingers in my ears. I was looking for blood and, and my head was pounding, but it was okay. Like I was clear enough. And I continued to check myself, my arms, my torso. When I reached up for my legs, that's when I felt it. The unmistakable arterial blood spurt with every beat in my heart. Oh my gosh. I How did was... you survive that? Because well, that's, so, that's usually like a death sentence. Yeah, the, luck, right? and gr- luck and grace. So wow. I just remember feeling that and I'm like, I'm going to die. I gave up. Just right there. Gave up. And I said, um, I was losing what seemed like all of my blood in this miserable place in the, on the earth. And you know, like in that moment, like I, like, just like you said, I knew I was done two minutes. Mm-hmm. I know I'm going to bleed out in two minutes. Right. Like everything. I'm going to be completely void of blood in two minutes. And I was done. I was making my peace with God. I was saying mm-hmm. goodbye to my wife and my 10 year old daughter and wow. giving up. And you know how they, you know, they say, you've probably heard before, like, oh, before you die, your life flashes before your eyes. Uh-huh. But that wasn't my experience. For mm-hmm. me, it was more like watching a, like a slideshow of things left undone, maybe. And I can't mm-hmm. remember specifically what they were, but it was like the one by one, it was like letting go or something. And I just remember the very last thing I remembered, it was my daughter. Mm-hmm. And she was all grown up. Dressed in white, head to toe, mm-hmm. and walking down the aisle without her dad. Wow! And, and I what just, happened after I just, that? I just like shut up, and I was like, "Damn, I'm alive! I'm alive! I got to do something to keep it that way." So I just reached my hand in the wound in my thigh, like almost up to my wrist, I'd, in an attempt to find the artery, and like just pinched uh-huh. off and stopped. I thought I was gonna be like MacGyver and just like reach in, and there it is, and pinch it off. Like it just doesn't Holy go shit. down like that. And I just remember (laughs) (laughs) that was the intention and that is not the reality. And I just remember like, okay. And I, am like, this is, I can't see it. It's pitch black. I can see a little bit. And, and, and you can't even really see the wound because it's like, it went through my leg and, but Uh my, my 
pants were still almost intact. There was a giant hole in the top and bottom, but I, you really couldn't see. And I'm like digging around in there and ripping my pants at the same time. And I just pressed against the piece wow. of shrapnel that was still lodged in my femur and just prayed. I was like, if I press hard enough, I can maybe, I can, maybe I'm holding the blood in enough that it'll give time for the medic to arrive. And in my head, like I it was like, Sergeant G, Sergeant G can fix anything. Uh-huh. And then I blinked my eyes. And then there was Dance Me. Wow. His fucking hair just hanging in my face. <laughs> <laughs> totally lying to me. He was like, Sergeant Evans, you're going to be all right. Wow. And then I, I blinked again. I had a tourniquet on my leg. Mm-hmm. I blinked again. And one of my team leaders, Sergeant Chris Chillis, was putting an IV in my arm. And then I blinked again. And there was my whole team, my family. Wow. Putting themselves in harm's way to remove my legs from the vehicle that was still on fire. Oh, so you're still there. You're I'm still st- at the scene. In the vehicle. I'm still, my legs are trapped. Like the whole undercarriage wow. of the truck kind of folded in on itself and pinned my legs. They're attached. Mm-hmm. My legs are attached, but they're pinned in the truck. I can't get out. Uh-huh. And so they had to like pry and wedge and the truck's on fire and they're trying to get me out. And then finally, was there a I'm concern a... for the truck exploding at any point, or was that not? Yeah, really no, concerned? that's fiction. That like trucks okay. exploding are it's pretty much fiction. It's okay. um, it we you burn JP8, which is basically diesel fuel, which has okay. a very high flash point. Um, mm-hmm. if we had ammunition in the truck, which there was some ammunition, but not enough, like that was pulled, like the belt was snapped and that was taken out immediately. You know, that's also responding right. to training, right? Right, right. Um, and it wasn't like this giant ball of fire inferno, and it was just like fire. Like, and it was it could have gotten bad, but they were able to extinguish it ultimately. Okay, you know? good, good. All right, good. But it. they were putting themselves very much in harm's way to get me out. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I was on a stretcher, then in a helicopter, and then my first surgery right there in a hospital tent right next to the main gates of LSA Anaconda that I had just left maybe 10 minutes prior. All of that in 10 minutes. Yep. Wow. Crazy. That's insane. So um, did they amputate then or did that yeah, come later? So I, I remember, I remember what my first memory, you know, I came off the helicopter and they, you know, I already had an IV in because, you know, our war fighters today, mm-hmm. and this is something for people who don't know and that, that they should know, our war fighters, not even the medics, our war fighters are some of the best combat lifesavers in the world. Right. They, they get combat lifesaver training. They can keep people alive in amazing situations. Right. Wow. Um, so thanks to just regular warfighters, like I was had an IV in my arm. I was ready, to, like ready to be received by the expert medical care. So I had I got happy juice right in my IV and I was out. And my first memory coming out of that surgery was a combat nurse's face right in mine. And mm-hmm. I'll never know her name but i'll never forget her face or or what she said to me she said sergeant evans you're a very lucky man we managed to repair your femoral artery wow we had oh my god we we had to take your left leg below the knee we managed to save your right one for now but you'll probably lose that one too wow and she was right after three years and 30 some surgeries i ultimately took my right leg which was the best decision i ever did yeah. Um, what were those three years like with trying to keep oh that like? God, it was, um, you know, they gave me the option to try to save it. So I was like, of course, I'm going to try. Right. And it was ridiculously painful. Um, 
I was on a insane amount of pain medicine just to get through each day. Ultimately, I, I wound up on the thing that's killing everybody now. I was on fentanyl. Right. I was on there, 100, I just 100 micrograms an hour. That. Yeah, that stuff is horrible for you. Yeah. Well, it's, a, well, it's actually a huge blessing. Like, this uh-huh. is the thing. Like, we're in an opioid crisis in, in America yes. and probably other parts of the world, too. <clears throat> and it's terrible. And pain medicine, op- opioid pain medicine, is a gift from God. Mm-hmm. it it fixes pain like it when you're in debilitating pain it is a savior the problem is it's, it's habit forming and addictive right. and then there's needs to be some management in in that it's over prescribed a lot of times but in my case it was a hundred percent necessary Right. It wasn't right. a failure. The pres- prescribing of it wasn't a failure by the healthcare system. It was the right thing mm-hmm. for me. And I had, because my pain level was so high, if I took enough of, like, say, a traditional thing they prescribed as like Oxycontin or uh, hydrocodone mm-hmm. or something like that, if, if they, if I had to take enough of that to manage my pain, I would have been drooling on myself all day. Wow. But fentanyl, I was able to work and drive a car. And op- and not that I was operating heavy machinery, but I could have. I was clear mm-hmm. because the fentanyl as a, as a as a painkiller drug, like as a prescribed drug, is very clean. It doesn't have the euphoric like, oh my god, that feels so good effect like an IV right. dilated or morphine does. Uh-huh. It just goes to work, sh- canceling out the pain. And oh, that sounds great. Huge, it's a huge blessing, <laughs> right. and though. It is the most potent narcotic in the world. It's like a hundred times more powerful than uh, morphine. I don't know if you watch um, the Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj. I've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. He has a whole does a whole episode on that. It was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. But yeah. um, yeah. So I was uh, on a ton of pain medicine, and then when I finally took it off, and it, you know it's. It was always on the fence. Should I keep it? Like, oh, should I take it? Should I keep it? But I didn't want any more surgery. And I was like, done. And, you know, being on pain medicine that much, I felt like I was okay. I mean, I wasn't. But I felt right. like I was. Um, right, because it masked that. And right. were you looking at, like, having to always take it if you kept that leg? 100%. There was no other way. There, I knew, like, if I kept my leg, I was going to be on pain medicine for the rest of my life. Unless some what miracle was surgery. That? Was it so my, like, what, what was it about the leg? It was, was about my right pain. leg. So it was, I mean, my right leg was in horrible shape. Um, uh-huh. The talus and the tibia, fibula, the whole ankle was destroyed. My foot was flipped upside down where my foot was facing the opposite way. Oh, my God. And all broken. Like, wow. all those bones in the, the heel was broken. The metatarsals were broken. Like, everything was broken. But they were like, okay, mm-hmm. since you lost this one, because the other one was worse. So that's, mm-hmm. we can maybe save this one. So we're not going to cut it off right now. We're just going to maybe save it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we tried, and it and it and it, you know, it all. So with didn't the work. fentanyl, you were able to like walk around on that. Like I could, yeah. Normal. I walked wow. around. Now I had horrible range of motion in my ankle. I had terrible swelling issues from uh, poor circulation and lymph lymph uh, return. Um, mm-hmm. And it just it looked terrible. 
like hindsight totally should have taken it off right there in the hospital. But, you know, you only know what you know. But now the good news is if I would have taken it off right in the hospital, the rest of my life, I would have been like, man, I wonder what it would have been like if I would have kept it. Right. So So it's really a blessing in a lot of ways. So much easier. Because if I had one good foot, I could just hop into the shower and hop out. Now everything is so much, it's infinitely harder getting up moving. It's like everything is harder. I can do anything. It just takes me a lot longer, you know? Right. Um, and it's, you know, showering is harder, but if I had a foot, like, oh, you can just get an alley, you know, and that's just wow. not the reality. But the good news is the good news and all that is I gave it every attempt. And then, so when I, by the time I did take it, I know 100% that it was the right thing to do. And then, so there's no regret. There's no nothing other than, yep, now it's gone. And then I just only look forward. So it's, there's no use looking back anyway. But, right. and when I took my right leg off, I remember this. Nikki, I was in the hospital. It was 2008. I decided to finally take my leg off. It was January of 2008. And my doctor was like, Scott Shallon. He was like, hey, you know what? We could fuse it. We could do this for pain. And I literally shushed him on the lips. Like I put my finger on his lips and shushed him. (laughs) (laughs) And and I was like, you're taking my leg off tomorrow. Done. End of story. And he was like, got it. I remember waking up from that surgery. And... I'm in the recovery room. There's like one other person at the other end. This time is at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Best of the best place to get treated. Nothing but the best quality medical care and surgeons. And I woke up and, okay, I'm coming too. And I just started weeping. Just weeping. And I didn't get, I was like, what, what is happening? Like, what, why am I weeping? And I had this revelation. This kind of dawned on me. It was the first time I was pain-free in three years. Wow. And I was like, whoa. That's huge. It's huge. That's and then huge. I, um, now the pain came back because then all of the anesthesia wore off, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Kind and, of a cruel But I quit, I quit fentanyl cold turkey mm-hmm. in the hospital, which wow. every doctor was like, no, don't do it. It's going to wreak havoc on da, da, da. But I had to do, like, I had this post-surgical dilated. Uh, on the IV because I was in serious pain still and that sort of helped but I didn't sleep for probably five days I felt like my skin was crawling off my body it was the most ridiculous horrible painful withdrawal that you can possibly imagine and though when I was done I was done and I was like swore I'd never take another drop of narcotic pain medicine and I haven't that's incredible Mm mm-hmm Incredible. The five days it took you to get that out of your system. Yeah. No, it was, I didn't sleep for five days. It went on probably maybe seven or eight, like the lingering sort of effects. Um, But then you were taking that every day for three years. Every Every day day for three years you're taking fentanyl. Wow. And so I had, it started with a 100 microgram lollipop, a Mm -hmm. maybe once a day, maybe a couple times a day, 100 micrograms. (sighs) And then by the time I went in three years later, I was on a hundred micrograms an hour of a patch. Holy and shit. Four to five, 500 microgram lollipops every day. Oh my God. I can't even fathom how many, how many grams if, that is. If, it's insane. If the largest like man on the planet right now took one 500 microgram lollipop, more than likely he would just die on this just right but to stop breathing oh my god and you were taking five more than that because my body your oh, body builds up you, you get used tolerance to it yeah. To it. yeah yeah 
Right, right. Oh my god. And I can't believe you you were able to kick it like that. I get why your doctor said that. Right. That's incredible. But I, I just knew, like, I knew if I stay on, then like maybe I might like the way it makes me feel. Maybe, and I'm like, no, no, I'm here. No, no, I'm in no, the hospital. No. This is mm-hmm. the place. This is the time. I got to do it. Wow. And you and that and those like eight days you were still in the hospital you weren't home yet right right exactly yeah how long did you stay in the hospital that second time well see i can't remember how many days in the hospital bed inpatient in the ward but i Mm -hmm. stayed to get fit for another prosthetic and like you know the whole that sort of whole process it was almost four months in total the first time was was 22 months and then the second time was four so you know i have Two years and two years and two days. I mean, two years and two months uh, of hospital. You kind of complete with hospitals. Yeah, I feel done. Like I feel complete. (laughs) I don't need any more time. Wow, that's a long time to be in a hospital. They're not the most exciting places either. No. Wow. Oh my gosh. What what a story of resilience. That's amazing. So, from there, Mm -hmm. had you done a yoga class at this point? Oh God, no. Oh my God, what? You got. You have to remember. I'm still at this point operating from everything like who I was growing up Mm -hmm. as being in the military. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in pharmaceutical sales at the time. See, I was in the National Guard. So I was a stockbroker first and like my business degree in marketing. And then I went into pharmaceutical sales and, you know, I just wanted to go back. And so like yoga, why? There's a pill for that. Right. 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 Yeah. I sold Zoloft, which is a, you know, antidepressant medication. Uh, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. I, I sold uh, a medicine for overactive bladder, one for neuropathic pain called uh, Lyrica. You know, all drugs, they're not bad. Like, they're not bad. They serve their role. But, you know, sometimes, you know, there's other things to do too. Right. Um, but so in my right. mind, yoga was, and it's all lack of perspective. Yoga was something for women. It wasn't for mm-hmm. men. And then yep. yoga was something for like weirdos. Like if you were a guy right. in yoga, you yoga, you must be weird. I mean, you something's yeah. wrong with you. You're not from the United States. You're not, you know, not American. You're, you know, just all this limited perspective. Like it just what I thought about it. And I remember, I do remember, like as I look back, I believe that you know when people would come to your hospital room, it happened all the time. They're like, hey, like there's some yoga available. I'm like, Psh, you can take that yoga and shove it right. You know, like we. Yeah, no thanks. Right, like no thank you. Right, like all due respect. Yeah, go fuck yourself. You right. know, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've been told that. Right, trying to get guys to do yoga. Yes, totally. Oh, that's and then so, so great. it was so far from reality for me, and uh, you know, never, I never considered it. Never considered it. Um, the first time, you know, I ever even considered trying yoga. It's because I dated a yoga teacher and she was, you should try it. And then I was like, oh, come teach me. And, you know, and then like in the halfway through, like te- I was not for real. I was just because she was there. Uh-huh. And then like halfway through, it was like make out session. Right. So it didn't even like, really <laughs> work. Right. It wasn't even really right, real. Right. Um, <laughs> it's usually yoga teacher girlfriends that get guys to to at least try it <laughs> i know that's been my experience a couple times actually. <laughs> there you go right <laughs> yes and uh but i was like it was nowhere near me taking it seriously right you yeah know, those, were, those were just you and her one-on-one which is right. definitely a recipe for disaster when it comes yes. to trying yoga seriously <laughs> for exactly. sure 
So how did you end up doing it? And you had and you had no legs too, right? Or yeah, from so the knee down, a, right? It was a deck. Yeah, I have I have uh, I have both knees, but from just below my knees down is gone, right? Mm-hmm. So it was almost a decade later. Wow. So how and... old are you? How old are you when the second leg? was amputated so 2008 how so i'm 46 minus 10 so i'm 30 i'm part of 35 okay when when right? the leg was amputated you were 35 the second one the second one second one right. okay first one then... was 31 31 when i got hurt okay got it and so then... november november 10th of 2019 this year will be my 15 year anniversary of the of the, of the um, accident of the got it yeah was well, it wasn't on time. accident. It was pretty much on purpose. Oh, yeah. Pretty I probably sure. shouldn't, I probably shouldn't <laughs> no, call okay. it an accident. <laughs> no, it was I an got accident it. on your part. Like, <laughs> right. I definitely didn't want it to happen. But Right. 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 <laughs> um, so um, I had had. So what happened was um, I needed another surgery on my right leg. So when my leg was all, when I was saving it, I had all these scars that were like from pulling parts of like part of my gastrox actually in my calf. Mm-hmm. They had to push, they had to cut a football shape out of my calf, push it into the bone, Oof. slide it down the inside to pop it out the hole that was in my ankle. It was called a reverse sural flap. They had to cut the sural nerve, which kind of messed with my nerves a little bit. But um, so I had this football shaped chunk on my ankle when I still had a right leg that uh-huh. the hair grew upward Oh, weird. because it was from my calf. Uh-huh. Upside oh. down and inside, right? Like it was because oh, it had its weird. own blood flow. So oh, that's so interesting. That, when they I love the my, human body. <laughs> I know it's crazy, right? So that's when they cut, when they cut my leg off halfway, mm-hmm. sort of like halfway down, um, that scar from where they cut it out of my calf became the bottom of my residual limb, like what was left of my leg. Mm-hmm. And then so when you wear a prosthetic, you have to put this this uh it's called a liner over it. It's like an almost, it's not neoprene, but it looks like it. It's like a gel neoprene cap that protects your leg from like the impact of a hard carbon fiber socket. And uh-huh. then being in that socket, it's like this intimate fit. So it starts to, starting to imaginate that scar and really tear up the skin. And then the skin got uh-huh. really nasty and they were worried about like it becoming cancerous, like skin cancer from like the trauma of the skin rubbing on each other and oh, wow. bleeding all the time. And so like, Hey, we need to clean this up. So I got this, I had to go in to walk back to Walter Reed surgery number 36. Oh my gosh. To go 36 back to Walter surgeries. Reed. Mm-hmm. Some of them weren't super invasive, but still surgery, still in anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And then, so I go in and get that all cleaned up. And the difference was, is this time I had to go home to heal. So I went home back to, you know, Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. And now you fast forward, like it's so much time is, it's almost a decade now. And then, so I wasn't married anymore. My marriage became a casualty of the war and it was divorced. My 10 year old daughter, when I got hurt, was now 18 and she was in the army herself. Wow. Uh, my nine-year-old daughter now was three, and my ex-wife and I, we shared custody back and forth, but I couldn't take care of her while I was home alone because I was hopping around on one prosthetic leg and crutches. Wow. Right? And so I was, um, you know, I was, and I was not taking narcotic pain medicine because I was against it because I didn't want to go down that slippery slope, right? And then so I was right. like in pain, and I was just like, ah, oh, I was, you know, it, it, it wasn't a pleasant time. And... I had been very fortunate that Wounded Warrior Project met me at my hospital bedside 
when I first got hurt. And then they were the ones that helped me prove that my disability didn't define me, right? That I get to define what the rest of my life was going to be like. And they were everything to me. And I ultimately wound up working for that organization. That's where I was. I was an executive vice president in the organization. And that's what I was doing um, at this time. Mm-hmm. And I had to take FMLA, like the Family Medical Leave Act, to because it was like had a regular job now, and so I had to take that to go, uh, to go back to Walter Reed, and now I'm home alone, healing, and I can't answer email or t- or talk to people, my team at work, because it's against the rules on FMLA. Oh, um, really? Everything, yeah, everything that I did to cope before with the invisible wounds of war, right? Uh huh. So the, here's the thing, like, so like, there's over 800,000 people that have PTSD from the global war on terror. Like, and there's, you know, 800,000. Yeah. Wow. And then there's, you know, the over 400,000 live with a traumatic brain injury. And then there's, you know, the, what's so the, the PTSD. I never identified, like, I don't, here's the, here's the reality. I do not have PTSD mm-hmm. because PTSD is a diagnosis that a doctor has to give you. Right. And I wasn't so, going to go ever go see a, a head doctor. Fucking crazy. Like, no. <laughs> I'm right. fine. And when, and the, yeah, was that kind of like your inner dialogue? Like, no, I'm okay. Like, I'm tough. I can handle this. I don't have it. Was like a denial kind of I'm fine? A little or bit, like... yes. It was a okay. denial, I'm fine. And then mm-hmm. there was also some reality to that. Because mm-hmm. I was involved in the Wounded Warrior Project, they taught me like, some really great coping skills. So I never really suffered. Because as soon as they would start to like show their ugly faces, right? All, like, all the demons from combat and mm-hmm. I would have, like, I, I knew I would either go ride a bike. I would go climb, like climb a mm-hmm. mountain. Like I climbed Kilimanjaro in 2010. I, Amazing. Uh, I would go play golf, right? And I got to be a single digit handicap in golf. So I got wow. to play golf. I got to do all of those things. And really they never really impacted me, right? Mm. So whenever they, I started to suffer, I had something to do to keep suffering at bay. So um, I went on like that, but now I'm uh-huh. home healing by myself and I'm on one prosthetic leg. Uh-huh. And there's when the invisible wounds started to show their face, there's nothing I could do. I couldn't climb a, a mountain. I couldn't ride a bike. I couldn't play golf. I couldn't, right. I couldn't do those things. So I did the best that I could and suffered. And you sat could, alone in your house suffering. Yep. And I wow. couldn't How long sleep did that go for? Well, I ha- I, well, here's the thing. It's like eight weeks. It was eight weeks until I could get my leg back and start mm-hmm. to walk again and move again. So I was like, okay, I'm sorry. I got to suffer for eight weeks. And then I couldn't sleep. And then when I did get to sleep, I'd have wake up with nightmares. And then with the nightmares, um, I'd wake up again. And then so I'd take a handful of Benadryl and chase it down with whiskey. Oh, my gosh. Hoping I wouldn't wake up in the morning. Really? Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily suicidal. Like, I'm going to kill myself. But it was just like. I'm done. If it happens, it happens. Kind right. Of a, I'm like, you know, yeah. I'm just done. I just need to go to bed. I'm like at wit's end. I can't even. It's just like, I can't even, you know, mm-hmm. that whole <laughs> sort of mindset. And then that's where I was. And I was so done. And I got so frustrated, lack of sleep. And I was like, just torn up. 
And I just said, I, I need to do something about it. Like I was starting to get worried about myself because I never understood the 22 veterans a day to take their own life. That was the statistics that first came out from the, the VA study in 2010. Yep. And then, so I never understood it. And then, so I was like, okay, um, I get it now. I used to think it was weakness. I'm like, I have, I know I'm going to get my leg back in eight weeks. So I have a light at the end of this tunnel. I know uh -huh. it's going to be better. I can go back to my old ways of coping. But right now, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm done. Like, I just can't do this anymore. But wow. so I wasn't going to kill myself. But I had this revelation. If I didn't have that light at the end of the tunnel, I would. Really? I'd totally be one of the 22. It just was, too, wow. it was terrible. It was terrifying. I was in physical pain. And that just exacerbated the mental anguish, like considering like all the invisible ones were. Wow. So um, I did, I had a, a really good friend of mine who happened to be a yoga teacher and I didn't hold that against her. And I was like, I just need <laughs> to talk to somebody. And I was just right. telling her everything that was happening. And I was just like, this mm -hmm. is what's happening. And this is what's ter it's terrifying. And then she listened. And then when I was all done, and I'm talking snot and tears and the whole thing. And she just said, Dan, you need some yoga in your life. And I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I was so <laughs> mad. I was just didn't want to have it. I was like, yeah, right. no, thanks. <laughs> Sorry. I called you, you know, that whole, that whole thing. And mm -hmm. um, she listened, she heard where I was at. She heard my sort of skepticism. She heard my, you know, my upbringing, my military career talking in that situation. She did a great job. And she goes, well, okay, okay, got it, got it. What about meditation? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I tried to meditate before, right? Because I read it in like Steve Jobs' book and like in business books, meditation right. was like just starting to sort of get the the Harvard study about regrowing gray matter in the brain was almost about to be published. And so like there was mm -hmm. all this buzz about, you know, meditation was good and like who doesn't love Gandhi, right? Like so like, exactly, yeah. Exactly, right. <laughs> right, like okay, I'll try it. But I suck at it. I tried. She's like, oh, well, maybe you're not doing it right. And then she taught me that meditation was all about being present completely right. present and not like vacant which is what I thought I was supposed to do yeah, a lot of people think that still think that it's that that's letting sure. go of everything and yeah, yeah right. getting no, empty it's like the fact of getting present is access to letting go of everything but it's, yeah right it's so first it's step. not the other way around yep and uh so I started she came and taught me and then I started I'm like what do I have to lose so I started meditating twice a day 20 minutes and then and of course it was terrible at first like I was like oh, I'm just thinking but I was like I knew what I was supposed to do now mm -hmm. and then the more I did it the better I got and I could sleep at night it started to like really fix things for me like change things not perfect but much better and then like it was manageable weeks, and yeah it was workable manageable. and yeah. like and I was no longer like nightmares pretty much ceased ultimately I was wow. getting better sleep. I was taking better care of myself. I was, I was like, even like, even just the, that act of meditation made me start eating better. Right. Just yep. weirdly how it just worked. Right. Like just all these things started to line up and, and again, not perfect, but that's what was happening. And then I remember um, getting my leg back, going back to work. And I had this, I made this mistake. This is the mistake I made. I called my teacher, Anna, to say thank you. <laughs> it might have been like, the best mistake ever right? <laughs> right I said thank you so much and then she did what any good friend would do uh -huh. oh so this weird voodoo hippie bullshit eastern stuff worked for you huh 
And That's what she like, said? Is that a Yes, quote? exactly. <laughs> Almost Amazing. verbatim. Right? Almost Amazing. verbatim. <laughs> and then, uh, and I, look, I'll admit when I'm wrong. And I was like, yes, it did. You were right. And she goes, I think you owe me some yoga. Great. And then I couldn't get out of it. And then <laughs> so I agreed to, and then committed to three private lessons, one-on-one, private. Because I couldn't do yoga with you weird yoga people. Yeah, yeah, you weird yoga people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you kind of, you probably had to do a one-on-one. Yeah, because I didn't having... know what the hell I was doing, right? Yeah, and, well, and the fact that you had no feet. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, mm-hmm. so to walk us through that, like, what was that first private like? It was terrible. It was the worst <laughs> thing ever. So, like, I'm in this. So, what? First of all, let's be real. I'm an all-or-nothing type of person, right? So, I'm mm-hmm. like, I got to go get some yoga gear. So right. I walked into Lululemon. Amazing. Right? I refinanced <laughs> my house to buy a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> yes. Right? The yoga mat, in... too? No, yoga I didn't mat? get a yoga mat from, from Lululemon because my, okay. t- my teacher was like, no, I don't think that's the right mat for you okay. um, at the time. So I went into the yoga studio, and then my man card basically ripped itself up right on my wallet. <laughs> so tearing itself up, I got a... A yoga mat, a Manduka Pro 2, a really thick one. Because so I was like, oh, okay, yeah. man. It has the word man right in the yoga mat. Yeah, like, exactly. Okay, Manduka, right? <laughs> that was the original yeah. heavy ones, right? Yeah. They, and I, yeah, I still I have my, my first yoga mat. I still have it. And it's That's my amazing. everyday. It's my it's my mat. Like, it's very Those Mandukas will last forever. Yeah. The very original ones are great, great mats. Mm-hmm. They don't even make this one anymore. And I'm No, like, they don't. This is I lost mine. I'm so upset over it. Like, oh. mine is gone forever. It's like, it's <laughs> like a new. Someone else is enjoying it. My yoga mat's like my blankie now. Like, you're like, I never had a blankie as a kid that I remember. And like, in the military, uh-huh. there's a thing called a poncho liner. And it's uh-huh. like a part of your, 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 your um, sort of gear that you get. And the poncho mm-hmm. liner makes a really amazing blanket. And it's literally, it's officially known by basically everyone as a whoopee. And oh, that's great. your whoopee. And your whoopee is basically your blankie. It goes inside your sleeping bag. And it's like, man, it's my whoopee. You curly, you cuddle with it. And it's like, it's that's amazing. amazing. So like my yoga mat is now my new whoopee. But, uh, <laughs> but at the time it wasn't. And, and I remember it was hot. It was like, so why is it so hot in here? And then she's teaching me to stand. And I just got my right leg back. So it's still painful in there. And it hurts. And it's like all of that sort of. Mm-hmm. So you're doing class with your prosthetics on? With my prosthetics. Just her and I, I'm standing on my leg. Because, yeah, because plus she's been teaching about a year, right? So Mm -hmm. um, I didn't even consider doing it without legs on. That's weird, right? So, like, I'm going to do it, right? I'm going to move my body and we're going to do this thing. And she's teaching me these things. And, like, I'm very off balance because, one, I'm on prosthetics. And, you know, I can't feel the ground underneath my feet. And I'm still in pain. Like, even though I got my leg on, it's still painful inside of it because I just had a like the whole bottom of it taken off and sewn up and you know wow um Oof. and uh but it's healing like it's healed but mostly you know and um mm-hmm. it's still sensitive and tender and and you, and you know i'm losing my balance and i'm kind of like she's teaching me like oh warrior poses i'm like oh they're cool and i'm doing like warrior one she's saying stupid shit like root down <laughs> to rise up I'm like, what the fuck does that mean she was a baptiste teacher yeah she's a baptiste yoga okay. teacher she is she's like, root yeah. down to rise up and fuck you speak english right like <laughs> and i'm like this is so dumb and and i'm and i and here's the thing is like i'm, I'm a pretty athletic person like i kind of get things mm-hmm. with my body pretty quickly even right. as an amputee like i could beat people with legs in golf i could cycle harder faster than people with legs mm-hmm. without legs i can climb kilimanjaro like passing people on the mountain like you know like the ego building stuff 
because I can right. just do it. Can you just sort of naturally do physical things pretty easily, good hand-eye coordination, stuff like that. But I right. sucked at yoga. I'm like, this is terrible. Like, so it's not <laughs> only am I in pain, not only is it weird, not only am I like sort of battling the whole manhood issue, but I'm like, I suck at it. So I'm like, this right. is terrible. And, and then when I'm like losing my balance, she's like, press your feet into the earth. I'm like, safe feet one more time and watch what happens. <laughs> like I was good. My old ghetto was coming out. I'm like, you know right. where I'm from, bitch? I will cut you. Like, <laughs> right? like uh-uh. Oh, and then incredible. so, and I remember leaving that, that first lesson and I was like, okay, I'm driving home. I'm like, done. Checked it off the box. Done with yoga. Until she called me that night later. And then she was calling the schedule the next lesson. And then right about the time I was going to tell her exactly what to do with that next lesson. Uh-huh. <laughs> I remember that I committed to three. Wow. And commitment is a commitment. Yeah. Period. And that, so what you just said right now, that wasn't something I got until I did my Baptiste yoga training. Now you being aware of the power of commitment and power of your word, is that from your military training or is that something you yeah, naturally that's always just, had? I think that's military. Okay. And, you know, my dad was big on like your word too. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. But it was, uh, it was mostly at that point, it was military, right? Okay. Got it. Commitment. Yep. That makes sense. So you and, committed uh, to three and you scheduled I committed to three. Mm-hmm. So, so now I'm in the second, so I schedule the second one. It's like for like two weeks later, cause it can't be anytime soon. I'm so busy, so right. so busy, so very, so very, very busy. Right. And then I'm like, I'm in it again. And like, I'd love to tell you, Nikki, that it was just like, oh, it was so magical. Nope, still sucked, mm-hmm. still painful, still mm-hmm. miserable, still sweaty, still getting frustrated, still can't do it, still a little sore. She's still saying root down to rise up. I'm like, God, would you shut up? Like, I was so <laughs> mad and I got so frustrated. I just looked at her. I said, can I do this with my legs off? This is the second and session. This is the second session. And her eyes like poof, popped out of her head. Okay. Her eyes were saying, no, okay. you can't. <laughs> what am I going to tell you to do with your feet? You know? Right. Um, but her, her mouth said, yep, let's do it. Wow. And I just remember, and look, and here's the thing you need to know. Nobody, nobody got to see me with my legs off. And here you are doing it, it in this yoga it, because session. Because it was like, they were, wow. you know, we all have our best features, physical features. They were, yep. legs were mine. Uh-huh. And when they got blown off, I had to deal with that shame. I had to, like, they, I watched, like, these powerful, I mean, I was a smaller guy, like, in my upper body. I mean, I wasn't tiny, but, like, you know, compared mm-hmm. to, like, a lot of people, I was smaller. Mm-hmm. And, but my legs, like, I could put 100 pounds on my back and run 26 miles. What? Right, like. Yeah, like I just, I could just go. That's incredible. My legs were powerhouses. And then they were gone. Wow. And then what used to be these you know, strong, powerful muscles shriveled up and wow. full of scars. And But then I got prosthetics, mm-hmm. covered that all up. And then I got <laughs> to like stroke the ego muscle again with like beating people at golf and climbing and cycling and da 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 Like filled up right. that whole ego bucket. Uh-huh. And then, um, but like, I mean, kids thought they were cool too. Like kids, you know, <laughs> whoa. And I have a quick PSA for uh-huh. parents out there. <laughs> so like when I be like, like kids stare, it's what they do. They're curious. Right. 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 And then parents fuck it up. So kids stares. Whoa. Parents sees the kids staring. They're like, no, no, don't look. Don't. 
And then so they think they're sparing the, the person with the limb different or physical difference or whatever difference it is. They think they're sparing them of some sort of embarrassment uh-huh. um, by not the kid not looking, right, or asking questions. But what they're doing in that moment is, and this is what the parents need to know, is they're telling their children that the difference is bad and wrong and shouldn't be talked about. Oh, that's important. I'm really glad you shared that. Yeah. Right. So what do you want to have happen in those situations? So this is, so this is, so this is what I do. So I don't wait for, like, if I see a kid stare, Uh means this this is something brand new for them. I don't wait for the parent to do anything. I just walk straight up and I'm like, whoa, isn't that cool? And they're like, yeah. That's awesome. How old are the kids usually? Like under 10 years old around like. Yeah. Like somewhere anywhere between like five, sometimes maybe even four, four and four Mm -hmm. and probably eight that's by the time awesome. they're 10 they've probably seen it enough. maybe even on tv or something right oh, but so they're like they're always like what happened and i and <laughs> i go so i didn't awesome eat my like that. i didn't eat my vegetables <laughs> you know and like, oh, right and <laughs> i make it so like great. a joke and like then it's fun and the parents think it's cool and then and then they laugh and the kid looks confused and the parent laughs and then that situation makes everything normal mm-hmm and then the kid just realized, well, this guy with no legs just made my mom or my dad laugh. That's awesome. And then I'm feeling like I don't get the joke, but then, <laughs> oh, so it's all good, right? Like it's, you know, and then it's, um, it sort of makes everything just like, wow, this guy doesn't have legs like this, but he's totally normal. Right. Wow. That's really cool. I love yeah. that. Changing kids' point of view and parents' point totally. of view. Totally. Totally. That's where it all starts. So you did, you took your legs off. So I took my legs off and I'm like dealing with this shame. Like what I'm not dealing with it. I'm so, I'm so frustrated. It's not even registering to me. Uh And I get on my yoga mat and I am like, and poor Anna, she's probably behind me. Well, she is behind me. I'm on my yoga mat and she's standing behind me. She's probably saying to herself, okay, now what am I going to tell him to do? Let me figure out how I'm going to coach him through this new experience. Right. But then me on my yoga mat, I'm like, I'm just going to do this shit. Like I'm the all or nothing. Type, like I said, I'm an all or nothing type of guy. Mm-hmm. And then so I'm like, I'm just going to do it. So um, I'm going to, and if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do warrior pose. I'm going to do warrior one because I'm a fucking warrior and we're going to do this. And I'm mad and I'm frustrated. <laughs> and I'm like, how's the pose go? So I know how it looks like when she's showing it to me and how it feels when I'm trying to do it. Like I'm all wobbly, but now I'm mm-hmm. on my knees and I'm so right. fucking stable. Wow. But it just hit me like right in that moment, you know, when I was in, when I was in combat, this is just for perspective. Um, it is literally the epitome of toxic masculinity it, it, to put a label on it. And it wasn't necessarily about being masculine or uh, definitely not about being toxic, but it was no one's better than me. We're going to kick everyone's ass period. We are the best at what we do. And, and, and I am, eight feet tall and bulletproof and no one can fuck with me. Wow. That's how I that, felt. That was and like your, your way of being of sorts. T- from totally. Being, and yeah, that way of being keeps uh-huh. people alive in combat. I get so and good. So that, it's the right place. Yeah. It's so the right place. And then back to it just life, doesn't so. work at all when you come back, by the way. Right. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned that quickly and I, and I also knew better. So like, I never really had that experience flesh out for me that I, that I, oh, oh, I should change that way. But when I had this moment on my mat, I never felt so small in my whole life. Wow. And this is a kid who used to be bullied. Yeah. And I was 
and I just felt broken mm-hmm. and useless. Wow. And I was like, how the hell am I going to do this? But again, I'm like, okay, but I'm doing it. And okay, so what? Is it? So I split my knees and I'm like, okay, what is this bullshit she keeps saying? Root down to rise up. What does it mean? Uh-huh. So I just remember, I just visualized roots growing from what was left in my legs, like into the planet. Like I was like, I'm all in. I'm just going to do this weird shit. And then, okay, root down to rise <laughs> up. I know in Warrior One, your arms go over your head. And she taught me what to do with my shoulders and how my hips are supposed to be. And when I lifted up, Nikki, like, listen, I am mm-hmm. a dude and I mm-hmm. shoot guns and I mm-hmm. eat meat and yep. <laughs> I'm just very much a dude and I'm just as dude as they come. And especially back then. Right. Right. I wouldn't right. identify as like a hippie granola crunching tree hugger, mm-hmm. like any of those words <laughs> that I would used to say that kind of derogatory. But now I'm like, I'll hug a tree. It's amazing. Right. But I can still don't right. identify with it. Right. <laughs> right. I still I don't identify with like that sort of vernacular. Right. Mm-hmm. And um. But like, not a metaphor, not an exaggeration, mm-hmm. the planet, the earth sent this incredible jolt of energy up through my body and it lit me up from the inside out. Wow. And my arms flew over my head and I was like on fire on the inside. I, had, I felt eight feet tall. I felt 10 feet tall. Wow. And I felt better than I'd ever felt before. And I was alive and just filled completely with this brand new sense of like belonging and connection. And if I had to like make a movie of it, light would have been shooting out of my hands. Wow. And I got a visual of you in that position with like completely physically lit up. I, I, and I was, and I was, tears were streaming out of my face and I wasn't crying, just tears were coming out because men don't cry. Tears were, <laughs> tears were right. streaming out of my face. Mm-hmm. And I was having this breakthrough moment of my whole life. Wow. And poor Anna was behind me, probably wondering what am I supposed to do with my feet? Like she was completely oblivious. <laughs> right. And, and it was like the earth was saying, Dan, where have you been for the last 10 years? That's incredible just floating above it on prosthetics completely checked out so the, i mean the very thing that connects everything all of us the earth the, the rock that we stand on connects us mm-hmm. all like by just pre- our presence on it and yet i was oblivious you know i said before that my marriage was a casualty of the war my marriage mm-hmm. was a casualty of connection wow yeah on both that's a powerful parts, that's really. a powerful revelation yeah that's powerful and, and, and um, and here you are finally connected to the earth after being floating above it on prosthetics for how long? Yeah, right. Well, almost almost a decade. Wow. Talk yep. about getting grounded again, huh? Yes. That's amazing. So so very. So lucky. You, so then you did your third session. Anything else happen in that session? Well, in that session, I was like, I got it. Then eventually, she saw like the moment that I was having. She's like, "What's up?" I'm like, "This is the best thing." in my life like how wow. do I get more
Hey, hey. Hi, hi. Here we are. Okay, there we go. You got it. So, perfect. Um, yeah, so listeners, sorry about that. We had a bit of technical difficulty there. So I lost you when you were saying, um, uh, like, how can I get more of this to your yoga teacher? Yeah. And then so for the rest of that lesson, we just worked on modifying poses and transitions. And I was hooked. I couldn't wait to get to my third lesson um, because um, I would the change. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was divine. Wow. I was just like, it was this divine sort of intervention. And then um, by the end of my third lesson, I was signed up for teacher training. And where did you do that teacher training? I did my level one, Baptiste level one in Hawaii. Oh, oh my God, Hawaii. How mm-hmm. incredible. And it was that awesome. completely changed the direction of your life. Completely. And did Baron himself lead that? He did. Yeah, Baron, Baron still leads almost all level ones. And um, at that time, it was in Kalani, Hawaii. And it was... Uh, you know, I love to say like the Baptiste yoga is absolutely incredible and I, and I love it, but, uh, and not, not, but, and so, you know, how like, you know, you you grow up and it's like, oh, I had to walk uphill both ways to school, right? That whole kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I was like the last hard level one, meaning like, um, it was the last time Baron really went, I don't want to say it goes all in. It's before he refined the content down enough to to get us out of a reasonable hour. Like we would go till sometimes one a.m. and then yeah, be that's... right and right back up at six the next day, like yep. going <laughs> all day, all boom, just like go go go. Wow. Um, and it was great. And don't get me wrong, but I was committed to not being a yoga teacher. I was committed to just learning and not being a yoga teacher. <laughs> and that when, when and how did that change for you? Um, it was like six months later. See, I was trying to get everybody I knew, especially vets and dudes. I was like, look, just try yoga. Try it, try it, try it. And I kept getting like the no, the no, no. I mean, they were all me. Right. Right. Talking to yourself. Right. <laughs> and um, they're like, no, great. Glad that you had the experience. And I get it. Yeah, but I just, no, I'm not going to try it. You know, just like they weren't mean. And then, the, oh, and then like I remember from level one, I posted a picture on it on uh, Facebook. Um. And I was doing like this pose called half moon and the photographer took it. It was like all well lit and like Hawaiian backdrop over this cliff and a black sand beach. It was like, Oh, so beautiful. Right. And I posted that on Facebook. I'm like, I know I'm going to hear it. I'm going to hear this from my people. And all the comments on Facebook were like, wow, nice. Look at that. And like in real life, it was like, Dan, what's up with the yoga? Like anything you want to not ask or not tell us about Dan, like that whole sort of like, like military people, the way we show love to each other is by tearing each other apart. Like it's just, right. it's just what we do. Right. And uh, and they were loving me real hard on my on my yoga. <laughs> oh, and uh, <laughs> and though, but I was I didn't want to teach because I was that's for yoga teachers. Like I just wanted to learn. I wanted wanted them to go. And then six months later, and like I was like. I did my level one teacher training and I was like, do I want to do level two? I was like, oh, I feel good. Like I got the yoga practice down. I'm learning more. I kind of don't need it. And I don't want to teach. So why get my 200 hour certification? Like why? And uh, right. I just remember I was at a golf event at TPC Sawgrass, which is in, in Ponte Beach, Beach, Florida, which is right across the street from my house actually. And uh, I'm at an event and all these wounded warriors are playing golf in this golf event. And there was a buddy of mine that was there. And he was like, uh, Dan, you look lighter, like, like lighter. Is that the yoga? 
And I was like, yeah, it is. And he literally goes, man, I, I want to learn more about it. And I was so excited. I was like, oh, shit, here's a dude, a dude, a busted up army dude who is um, hurting. And he's thinking about yoga. I'm so excited. So I was like, hey, and I tried to play cool. And I'm like, hey, just come to my house after the yoga. I mean, the golf event for a beer. We'll talk about it. And so I remember he was following me home after the event and I was so excited, but in a weird, I, th- I felt like a dad about to have the sex talk with my kid. <laughs> yes. yes, that's an incredible way to put it. Cause I've had that feeling trying to explain it to athletes in the past. And I was very accepted in the athlete world. Right. But yeah, back to the feeling like it is. Like, right. And I'm, yeah. and I'm freaked out. I'm like, what am I going to say? How am I going to bring it up? Like, Oh, you're right. Like, cause we're going to have a beer first. Cause that's what, men do and uh but thankfully when we got there we did crack open a beer and he was he started saying so what's up with the yoga and then i started pulling out like books like i pulled out uh journey into power and being of power both by baron baptiste my my teacher and uh and then the four agreements by don miguel ruiz and i'm showing him these things and i'm talking about it and like and i'm getting excited i'm like oh you got to read this chapter and this chapter and then i looked up and saw his face and I knew that something was wrong, like really wrong. And I just said, hey, man, is everything okay? And then he looked at me, and like the tears in his eyes, not, not falling, but they were like right on the edge. And he said, no, man, it's not okay. Wow. Two days ago, my wife found me in my closet with a gun in my mouth. No kidding. You guys, I was a second away from pulling the trigger. And then she opened the door and my little girl was right there. Wow. Oh my God. And he said, I just don't know what to do. And then the only thing I could just get out of my mouth was you need some yoga in your life. And he was such a better man than me, such a bigger man than me. Mm -hmm. He just said, teach me. Wow. I taught my first yoga class to one dude in my living room. You saved his life. Well, I didn't think that, especially at the time. And I just remember uh, it was the worst. Nikki, it was the worst yoga class ever. I didn't fucking pay attention to teacher training. I didn't want to teach yoga. So I'm like, <laughs> uh, child's pose, uh, but downward facing dog. This is where we're <laughs> supposed to own, but we're not going to do that. Let's just, uh, and I'm just like kind of like doing the best I can, which was bad, right? <laughs> and uh, And then I remember after you know, it's maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20 or something. And I just was apologizing for the class. I was like, I'm sorry, dude. Right. I'm like, I promise it's better than that. So I knew where he lived and I knew that there was a Baptiste yoga studio near him. And I called and I kind of set him up for free. Like I paid for his first month of unlimited yoga. I got him a yoga mat, got him all squared away. I was like, this is where you're going to go. Like go. And I, I, I did not tell the owner what was the deal was with him, but I just said, Hey, keep an eye on him. Uh-huh. And then she was telling me, hey, man, he's coming, you know, a few times a week, actually. And, you know, he's, you know, it's not real graceful yet, but he's working on it, you know. And uh, so I was just like, I was like, OK, I, I made an impact. He's going. That, that's it. And then uh, three weeks, about three weeks later, my phone rings and it's my buddy. Uh-huh. And he was like, hey, just wanted to tell you that my month of yoga is almost over. I'm calling to say thank you. I'm calling to tell you that I'm going to, I'm going to renew and do 30 more days. Wow. 
And I was like, oh, man. And, he, you know, he was saying thank you. So, you know, I thought he was thanking me for paying for it because, you know, I set it up, right? Right. And right, I said, right. oh, don't worry. She gave me a good deal, which she didn't, by the way. But I'm like, oh, don't worry. She gave me a good deal. <laughs> and it's all good. And he interrupted me. He's like, dude, I'm not thanking you for paying for my yoga. Because I'm thanking you for saving my life. Wow. And, and I still, I didn't get it. Like, I really, for, for like, I was like, no, like, I, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And then he kept talking. And he said, mm-hmm. yesterday was a really bad day. It happened to be the anniversary of the day that eight of his buddies were killed in Afghanistan. It's the anniversary. And uh, he said, yesterday was a really bad day. And I went to go get my gun. Mm-hmm. But I grabbed my yoga mat instead. Wow. And then I just, you know, finished the call, finished the conversation. And then I remember I'm, I'm in my home. I was in my home office. I had a home office at the time, which is now my nursery for my two-year-old. And, oh, and uh, I just finished the conversation with him and I hung up the phone. My computer's right in front of my face and I signed up for level two and level, wow. and level three on the same. same <laughs> I'm like, level two is in October, level three is in November. I'm doing both and we're just getting it done. Incredible. And um yeah, and then I was committed to teaching, and I haven't stopped yet since. Wow. Dan, that's amazing. I didn't know all this. Yeah, well, now you do. Yeah. Um, so why, why yoga and meditation for veterans who have PTSD? Even if they don't think they have PTSD, why do they need to be doing yoga and meditation? Well, it's, I'll, I'll say this, and this is sort of a, a good point for me. Um, to, to kind of bring up and especially if some of the listeners right now are military or mm-hmm. veterans is mm-hmm. um it's not for military and for veterans it's for every fucking person period yes agreed and so so the deal is with, with veterans like we're told so all the time how different we are than everybody and mm-hmm. a lot of time it's nowadays so like if you go back to the vietnam era how different we are is like that it's actually bad and nowadays, it's like, no, it's different. Like, it's good. You're this, you volunteer to, you know, like, it's this bravery and courage and, you know, all these things. It sort of um, makes veterans out as like a subset of superhumans in a way. Right. And right. now they're just human beings, just with different circumstances and different like, sort of maybe, maybe there's a call to service somewhere in there that all of us, I think, have in some way, it just might not be willing to pick up weapons, right? right? And go, go fight. Like, we all want the world to be a better place. And so a lot of times it happens to be kids, because it is, let's make no mistake about it, children, right? right. You know, 18 um, years old, um, yeah, which when you're 18, you're a grown ass man. Listen, 18 year olds, <laughs> I get it. You are, you're a man, you are a woman, you are able to vote yep. and go do things. And yes. And yes. <laughs> as someone who used to be 18, who is now 46, I was a child. Yeah. Right. And, um, uh, and a, a, a child, but a man. And mm-hmm. uh, that sort of awkward stage in between, like before the rite of passage, you know, and th- so we're set up like, it's just this, um, these kids that are joining are usually from broken homes and low-income families like me. And uh-huh. it's, and it's a, it's a way out. 
Yep. It's a job. It's a start of a career. There's training. There's education. I can I can escape the way I grew up, and I can go answer that call that is to be of service in some way. And maybe I don't want it to be to pick up a weapon and fight, but there's other jobs in the military where I don't have to necessarily be the warfighter tip of the spear. Yes, I do have to shoot, and yes, I do have to be proficient because at the end of the day, we're all warfighters and we're all infantry. But I'm doing something else. And that's the reality is we all live with this sort of call to service and a lot for low income people uh, Mm -hmm. and the way they grew up. It's like the military is the way out. Yeah. And so the passion and the call is there. It's just sort of like the easy way to leave a situation that probably isn't great being where they grew up and how they grew up. And then so we're all just human beings. And then so it's so sort of contrary to especially the the way that combat creates us as hypervigilant because that's what's happening. People don't that don't understand PTSD. What PTSD is, it is the brain doing exactly what it's supposed to do to keep us alive and safe. It's a very normal normal, completely normal reaction in the body to a completely abnormal set of circumstances. And then so that shows up as like the hypervigilance that keeps you alive in combat takes you out when you're home. Right. It's it's like those things. So what meditation is, Mm -hmm. is an access right? It's something that we can add discipline to do and that adding discipline to create stillness allows our brain a chance to see that, hey, these things that I'm still doing that are sort of remnants from combat, because when you're in it, when you're in that sort of hypervigilant and sort of uh, remembering all the things and demons of the past, it's like there's no awareness that you're thinking in a way that's not good for you. There's no awareness that, hey, that this isn't actually helping you at all, that, that the way that you're being is actually destroying your family. You're, you're not aware of it because you're in it so much and you're so in the flow of that's just the way it is. And I'm not fucked up. Everyone else is fucked up. Right. Because when it's you and that's your experience, that's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. And meditation is an access to start to see it. Because meditation at the root is an awareness practice. Right. And then so you start to become aware of the way that you're showing up in in certain situations that actually don't serve you and the things that you want to be up to in your life now that that chapter is past and you are at home and you're not in combat and you are relatively safe and that the people who are suffering are the people that you care about the most. And so meditation is like the way to start to see it. And then people think like, oh, it's like, oh, well, yoga heals you. No. (laughs) Yoga allows you the grace and possibility to heal yourself. Yes. Yoga doesn't do anything. It's you doing the yoga. Right. It's you doing it, using yoga as a tool. Right. And then there's, and there's the science, the science behind it. Like the fact that, The body's stress response, which stress is prevalent in every single illness, whether it's mental or physical, and -hmm. the body's stress response is automatic. It happens. Your brain produces cortisol. Cortisol makes you get And the more prolonged 
exposure to cortisol in your body, your brain actually starts to shrink. Your hippocampus, the, your, sort of the center of your brain that's responsible for thoughtfulness and, and um, remembering and retaining information starts to shrink. You become so much more primitive in your brain because like cavemen, because cavemen had you know, saber fucking tooth tigers or something at, at around every corner. So they, they had, they operated in a very basic sort of program and putting your butt, like, so part of the stress response is it affects our posture. We start to curl in on our shoulders, tighten the jaw, tighten the hips. And that's just what happens. And so a good, a dear friend of mine, Catherine Cucatone, um, researched this extensively. She's a professor, tenured professor at University of Buffalo. And she was like, okay, she wanted to study why does yoga work to combat the stress response in the body? And so what she found in her research is because when the amygdala fires up, it's the fear center of the brain. And that's you know, when the, something happens, like the alarm state of stress starts to happen. The amygdala, amygdala fires up and starts creating cortisol. All these things start happening and you tense up and that that's like just the stress thing happening Mm -hmm. and though one of the like i said one of the results of stress is your body posture starts to move your breathing becomes shallow heart pieces yep when you as the you that's actually in control of your body and everything say you know what and there's the awareness so this is the benefit of meditation you start to become aware i'm stressed out and i don't want to be Mm mm-hmm Right. Whereas without a meditation practice, you're just stressed out and that's just the way it is. Yeah. You just don't. Right. Yeah. And so I'm stressed out and I don't want to be. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull my shoulders back and then down and I'm going to, I'm going to fix my posture. I'm going to take my body from a position of stressed out to a position of I've got this. Yeah. Shoulders and down. and my breathing, I'm going to take over control of my breath. I'm going to take deep, full breaths. I'm going to take the breaths of someone who's got this and is not stressed out. Right. And when you do that, the stress response shuts off immediately. Cortisol production stops immediately. It works both ways. The same way the alarm reaction creates the production of cortisol, when you take control and put your body back into alignment and take control of your breath, it turns it off immediately that i did not know i yeah well yeah and so in the heart well the the, so that's in a perfect world right right if the stressor persists then you still have stress right so then it becomes like a battle right between like managing it right so the stressor is persisting and then you want to like but then you're aware of it so you can do something about the stressor and then incorporate breathing and posture and then like ultimately makes it better but then when, the, when you consider the physical practice of yoga, so now you're not only putting your breath and your posture, like creating true north through all your poses. And so you're combating, you're turning off cortisol production. You're actually, now you're moving your body. And then that's creating increase in serotonin and norepinephrine mm-hmm. and then dopamine. So not only are you turning off the stress hormones, is you're creating the feel-good hormones. And then, so that is like the recipe of why yoga works. Right. Wow. I always learn something from you every time I, we talk. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank you. And I know that we are actually five minutes over from when you. It's okay. I have a, I have a little bit of time. Okay, cool. So I actually wanted to, um, there's like two questions I wanted to um, ask you. And um, the first one is like, 
I learned this from you when we spoke a couple months ago. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. know that according to psychologists and academics that PTSD was incurable. And I right. was operating under the assumption that it was. And so can you cure PTSD in your opinion? Yes. And so like, yeah, most academics, so, you know, it's, it depends on where people went to school, what they study, right? Not all psychologists or psychiatrists or social workers or mental health professionals will say it's not curable, Mm -hmm. but so many of them will say, no, you can never cure PTSD. Right. You can only learn to cope with it. Right. And you can cope with it so well that it never shows up in your life again. So in effect, it could be like a cure, but it's never cured because the source because PTSD is post-traumatic stress syndrome. So you okay. can't go back in time and remove the trauma. Right. I get that. So then you're never cured. Right. Right. So that's like sort of the, the methodology behind it. But the reality is, is I'm a 100% cured. Right. All, all of my memories, all of the sort of the things that were like, I could call the demons of the past. Right. Especially as it relates to trauma, like, I don't have a PTSD diagnosis, mm-hmm. but if I would have talked to one mental health professional, I would have. Oh, for sure. Right? Absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. And though all of, and this is kind of the hard part to explain because, and so I'll say it first and then I'll sort of qualify it. Okay. It's like all of those traumatic experiences that I had, like mm-hmm. what I had to do in combat, right? what I've had to see. Right. My friends that and how I had to see their bodies and like all of these these horrible images, right? Right. Does not exist for me as trauma anymore. Right. Those aren't traumatic. When I look back at those those memories, I am filled with gratitude for every bit of who those people were. Right. For the situation and how that made me the person that I am today. Mm-hmm. And then so the actual as live memories are still there, all of the ins and outs, but I've been able to go back and forgive myself for the things that I need to feel forgiven for. And I've been able to look at all the horrible things that happened and say, okay, I, you're right. I can't change it. So instead, when I look back at it, I'm going to choose to focus on these areas that just remind me of the best parts of humanity. Wow. So when I start, when I share my story all the time, like I will be full of emotion. Like I'll have tears sometimes I'll get choked up, but it's, it's, I'm getting choked up over the amazingly positive parts of those stories. Mm -hmm. Like the remembering the people, how they showed up for me, who they were for me as a man, as a leader, as a, as a warrior. Right. And I, I get moved by it's nothing but positive. So the more I talk about the horrible experience of the, my horrible experiences of the past. And I use the word horrible just to qualify it in a way that makes sense for people. Right, right. When I talk about those experiences, I'm remembering nothing but the good. Yeah. And I'm so grateful to, it's actually meditation, but so yoga is an access to meditation, right? So it's actually because of my yoga practice and the, and what I've done is gave me the awareness to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. It gave me the ability to see things as they are are and that that it's not bad or wrong and then choose how I want to take those memories on and so I am cured like it would be impossible for me to look back and say like oh my god I'm devastated again about that thing I'm I have been I've I'm complete on all the tears 
Wow. I'm complete on all the agony and misery and regret and remorse. I've felt it all. I've experienced it all. And then I've reached the point where like, okay, I feel complete on that catharsis of feeling all of those feelings. So now it's time to move on to something else. It sounds like freedom. It's total freedom. And I wish it for every human being. What's next for you, Dan? Uh, what's next for me is finishing my book. Mm-hmm. Um, what's next for me is being the best dad I can be, mm-hmm. being home more in 2020 so I can be the best dad I can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just creating content that's, um, that I can get out into public Amazing. Uh, to help. I mean, you know, like, I don't know, like I have these experiences that I think and, and maybe hopefully a way to share them that people get it mm-hmm. and that, that I can maybe open some eyes that might be closed off to uh, yoga, mindfulness, meditation, and hopefully be a leader in creating some change around it. Absolutely. Where can you be reached? Uh, the best way is my website, dannevins.com. Great. I'll make sure to add that to the show notes. Um so I'm committed to curing PTSD with yoga and meditation. Amen. Yeah. Are you with me? I'm with you. Okay. Amen. Well, I'm committed to people curing themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And using the tools of yoga. By using yoga, mindfulness, and meditation. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a powerful distinction. Anything else that you need to share or get to? I'll, look, it's really this, this, this statement goes to everybody. Mm-hmm. But I've because but I have my community, right? So like my people, like we all have our people. Mm-hmm. So and I invite everyone to frame the same question, however they feel they need to. Mm-hmm. But I want people to invite a veteran to yoga. Yeah, because it just might save their life. I think it definitely will. It definitely will. do that this week. You know, listeners, if you do yoga, and, or don't do yoga, get into a yoga class. Yeah, and then, see, you know what? Find a veteran and invite them with you. Say, look, we're going to do this together, whatever it takes. I'm going to do that this week. I know exactly who I'm going to ask. I'm going to do it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much. Great talking with you, Nikki. Have a great one. <laughs> you too, Dan. I think I'm losing connection a little bit, so I'm going to end the call. Thank you so much, and reach out to us. Um if you have any questions, listeners. Thank you, Dan. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And there you have it, folks. A long one, but a very, very, very good one. Um, if you guys are interested in anything you heard on this episode, um, please don't hesitate to send me an email, redshootyoga at gmail.com. You can also reach out to Dan, like he mentioned at the end of this episode, dannevins.com. You can also find him at his name on Instagram as well. All of this will be included in the show notes for easy access. Um, If you have not yet donated to the Cheetah Coalition Project, which you heard mentioned quite a few times in this episode, please head to ifundwomen.com and search Red Cheetah Yoga um, or for more 
expeditious route, you can go to redshadeyoga.com, click on studio. It'll link you directly to iFund Women and also the link in the bio for Redshade Yoga and Nikki the Fairy on Instagram. So we'd love to see your donations in there. And when you donate, you will receive classes, gear, depending on how much you donate. You could even get um, yoga teacher training as a really great deal before the studio even opens. So please be involved in that. This is something I'm very passionate about. Um, obviously, Dan is very passionate about it. And this is a vision that I see as being a true reality for our entire country. So um, with that being said, there is the Crystal Singing Bowl Meditation this Friday, October 19th excuse me, October 11th, 2019 at Ohm Movement here in um, Coconut Grove, right in Miami. Uh, we also have the next edition of Cafe Namaste happening November, I believe, 6th. It's the first Sunday of November. So whatever day that is, be sure to check it out, get your ticket, and go check out Sam and listen to her interview and her experiences in Africa. An amazing, amazing episode on this podcast. And the Inspired Life Teacher Training is coming up. There's a 200-hour starting in November and the 300-hour beginning next year. So make sure you get your deposits in for that. And that's theinspiredlife.org to get more information on Megan Eastman's teacher training who was the interview I did right before this one. So thank you so much for listening, you guys. We could not have this um, podcast if it wasn't for you listeners. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggested guests for the future, please send me an email. Um, head to redchidiyoga.com, click on contact, or just type in redchidiyoga at gmail.com or send me a DM or a message on Facebook. Um, it's Nikki McGowan on Facebook and Red Cheetah Yoga also on Facebook. I do get back to those messages as quickly as I can. So thank you again so much. And I hope that this interview did not leave your eyes too dry. And I'll speak to you all very soon. Thank you, Cheetah family. Bye.